This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Recognize that the founder of the church growth movement never led, planted, or pastored a church bigger than 100 himself. Hi, I'm Carl Vaders, and welcome to Can This Work in a Small Church? My guest today is Dr. Gary McIntosh. He's the author of 26 books and counting, including the recent Donald A. McGavran, a biography of the 20th century's premier missiologist. That, in fact, will be the topic of our conversation today. We'll talk about McGavran and his role as the pioneer of the church growth movement. Now, hang on there. Don't let that stop you from listening. I know for a lot of small church leaders, including me, just the mention of the words church growth is enough to run, have us running screaming for the hills because we've been burned so many times by things that have come under that title. That's why I have Dr. McIntosh on today. He is the premier authority on the origins of the church growth movement, and he lets us know that the origins of church growth are very different than what most of us have been taught. Stick around, hear this, you're going to be encouraged, you're going to be blessed, and you're going to leave with a different understanding about this than you might have had before you started. And stick around until the end, I'll come back with a summary of the content and an answer to the question, can this work in a small church? First of all, thank you so much for agreeing to be uh, with us on the podcast today. I really, really appreciate your time. Glad to be here with you to talk a little bit. I've heard of your name for so many years because of your astonishingly prolific writing. I don't know how many books you have authored or co-authored. I don't even know if you know, but it seems like there are so, so many of them. And then you and I were guests on a podcast several years ago. I think it was the Sin Boldly podcast with Evan McClanahan. And I so appreciated your take on how our current understanding of church growth is very different than what was it was originally intended to be. And I've actually quoted you a couple of times based on that, but I didn't have a podcast at the time, so I just kind of let it go otherwise. And then recently I ran across your biography of Donald McGavran, and it really helped me to reframe my understanding of the church growth movement, especially the genesis of the church growth movement in some really important ways and in ways that I believe will really help other small church leaders. So could you begin by letting us, who was Donald McGavern for some who maybe have never even heard the name before, although I'm sure most of us have, and why is he so important that you took the time to write his biography? Carl, it's good to be with you today, and I appreciate the opportunity. Anytime I can talk about Donald McGavern, I, uh, I like to talk about him. I did know him a little bit. I wasn't very close to him, but I did get to know him just uh, slightly back in the 1980s when he was, uh, oh my goodness, he would have been in his 80s at that time, probably about 86 when I first uh, met him. But uh, Donovan Gavron is a person who's been called the father of the modern church growth movement. 
And he came from a missionary family, uh, both his uh, mother and father and uh, his wife's parents uh, were missionaries in India. Uh, in fact, McGavern traces his lineage all the way back to 1854 in India when his grandparents went there as missionaries. And uh, so he was born in India, the central provinces area of India in um, uh, let's see, 19, uh, 1893. And uh, he grew up there for about the first 10 years of his life. His father was an evangelist, uh, a missionary there. Uh, when McGavern was around 10, he had uh, two sisters and a brother, and they were getting to the point where homeschooling wasn't sufficient for them. And so his parents decided to come back to the U.S. so the kids could get better uh, education opportunities. And so McGavran went to basically middle school and high school here in the United States. And then he went to Butler University in Indianapolis, Indiana for his college years. That's where he met his wife, Mary. And he graduated from Butler in 1920. After he graduated from college at Butler University, while he was there in his senior year, he attended a Christmas conference by the student volunteer movement. And there he was challenged to commit his life to full-time service for Jesus Christ. And, and at that point in time, he made a commitment to Christ and to full-time missions work. Uh, he went then to Yale University for a couple of years, got a degree, a Bachelor of Divinity degree in education. Then he went back to Indianapolis and uh, spent a year getting a Master of Arts uh, in missions. Graduating in 1923, he and his wife also had married shortly before that. And uh, 1923, he and his wife went to India as missionaries, and uh, they were destined to spend the next 31 years uh, in the central provinces of India, working as uh, missionaries. The last 17 years of his time there, he worked as an evangelist. And it was during that 17 years that he did research and developed some theories on evangelism and church planting that eventually when he came to the United States and started teaching, uh, those theories eventually became known as church growth thought or church growth theory. And so that's a quick overview. Uh, yeah. He left the mission field in 1954. Uh, between 1954 and 1960, he traveled the world doing studies of growing and declining churches in many countries of the world, probably the most traveled missionary of his time. 1960, he founded a small school at Northwest Christian College in Eugene, Oregon, uh, where he taught uh, his church growth ideas to missionaries who were home on furlough. He did that for four years. And then at age 67, Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California, was looking to start a school of missions. And they tapped him on the shoulder and asked him to bring his small school from Eugene, Oregon, down to Pasadena, and he did that in September of 1965. He turned 68 in December of that year. Uh, he founded the School of World Mission at Fuller Theological Seminary, and that School of World Mission was destined to be the world's renowned school of missions for about 40 years. 
Yeah, uh, it's not what it used to be today. Uh, in fact, it no longer exists in the same uh, form. Anyway, he was teaching these theories of evangelism and church planting that he coined the term church growth, which we can talk about if you want. But basically, his theories of church growth were how can we win people to faith in Christ, get them baptized, get them into a church where they're they're serving Christ and growing in their faith. So many things about your your biography of McGovern was helpful to me. You, two of them you've mentioned already that I was aware of, but it, when you read it and you see it in print, for some reason, it just kind of registers with me a little more. And that some people may not know, when, when we think of the term church growth, when we think of the pioneer of the church growth movement, when we think of the Church Growth Institute at Fuller, most people probably think of, well, and it's an American thing, and it was probably some young whippersnapper. <laughs> and it turns out it came from a long-term missionary in some of the most difficult mission fields on earth. And it didn't begin until he was at what most people would consider past retirement age. Right, right. So it came out of a place of real depth, real maturity, and real mission-mindedness. It wasn't about trying to be cool or hip or, and especially when it's from Southern California, everybody thinks it's just, uh, it's just this crazy California idea. It didn't even begin here. It was, in, no. <laughs> right. No. It started in Indiana, moved to Eugene, Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and then a guy in his late sixties coins the term. I mean, everything about its Genesis is the opposite of, I think what most of us would have in our mind about where that started from. That's right. And, and another interesting fact is McGavran did not want to even teach his ideas to American pastors. Yes, that was one of the real surprises that I read in your book. Yeah, walk me through that. Yeah, he was a missionary and his heart was for the international peoples around the world and particularly places where the church was not abundant, you know, where the witness for Christ was not uh, available. And and he saw the United States as a place that had lots of good Bible-based evangelistic churches. Uh, and so he knew that the Christian witness had a great foundation here uh, in the United States, North America in general. While other countries had very, very few Bible-believing churches or points of evangelistic outreach and church planting. And so his heart was always for the lost and particularly the lost in other countries who didn't have readily available to them a gospel witness. And so when he started the School of World Mission, the requirements were that you had to, you had to have three years cross-cultural ministry experience, and you had to be fluent in another language other than English. Well, that, that pretty much ruled out every American pastor. Most of us, yeah. <laughs> I know in 1986, I tried to go there to work on a PhD and I couldn't get in. And the reason I couldn't get in is because I didn't have three years cross-cultural experience and I didn't have fluency in another language. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually yeah. they let me in. <laughs> but it was like 20 years later, 25 years later, they let me in. But the joke used to be that Fuller called it the school of world missions, but people from America couldn't get in. So we weren't part of the world. Yeah, it was it was our, our payback for calling the baseball championships the World Series when it's just American right. teams in it. <laughs> or North American teams anyway. We can't forget yeah. the Blue Jays. But what happened was there was an associate pastor at Lake Avenue Congregational Church, which is just across the freeway from the Fuller campus, yep. Fuller Seminary campus. And he heard about some of these insights that were being taught in the School of World Mission. And 
he thought that they were applicable to the American context. And the professors at the Fuller School of World Missions said, well, it'll all depend on what McGavern says. So they went and talked to McGavern and he said, well, I guess it'll be okay. <laughs> From my understanding of it, and correct me if I misread it, it wasn't just simply that you required another language and so on, and that he had come from, uh, you know, from a missionary outside the U.S. standpoint. But he was really reluctant to allow it because he he was somewhat suspicious of what would happen if these principles were uh, filtered through an American lens. Did I did I get that correctly? And if so, correct where I, I'm wrong on that. No, you're right. No, you're right. And uh, let me correct something. I said he was born in 1893. He was actually born in 1897. I, I was oh, okay. I, I was thinking about my own grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought yeah, there we go. I always thought of McGavern as like my grandfather. But you're right. McGavern was an astute observer of culture being a missionary for 31 years and then doing research for another basically uh, six years. You know, he had like 37 years of cross-cultural uh, research experience. And he was able to read uh, North American culture. He knew that when he started teaching his church growth theories in the USA, they would be changed, that they would be adapted and maybe used in ways that he would not feel appropriate. Because he knew that America, you know, part of the culture of America, North America, we have a, a fondness with big things, yeah. you know, whether it's Walmart or Costco or mega churches, you know, doesn't matter. Yeah. We have a fondness for big things. We're a big country. You know, when the founders founded America on the East Coast and they looked West, it was a big country. It was totally different than, say, England or Germany or Sweden. Those are small countries. Yeah. And people who immigrated in those early years to what we think of as the United States, they just didn't have as big a visions because those countries didn't have the expanse of opportunity that they found when they came to the new world or to the United States. So part of the culture of America is this fondness for opportunity, for building great things and big things and having big vision and the great vision. And, you know, McGavern knew when people thought about church growth, they would probably be thinking about large numbers. McGavern wasn't against large numbers as long as they were large numbers of new believers. Uh, okay. I mean, he was all about evangelism and winning people to faith in Christ out of the secular peoples of the world. Uh, he wasn't that concerned about building a big church off of transfers. In fact, he was uh, critical of transfer growth. I think he just knew, understanding American culture, some of the, the deep uh, cultural expectations and things that once church growth was taught in America, that it would tend to slide towards things that maybe he wasn't that concerned about. He, his yeah. real concern was evangelism. You tie our attraction to bigness and entrepreneurialism to our individuality as well. The, all of those really go counter to his original idea, from what I can tell. So he had this idea that if Americans took it, it would turn into something. How accurate was he? Well, I think he was accurate. I think he knew you know, what was uh, going to happen. But I think at the same time, he was wise enough to realize that wherever you take the gospel, 
into whatever social context around the world, the gospel is able to adapt to any particular cultural milieu. And, and perhaps that's why the Holy Spirit didn't tell us exactly, you know, what the church would look like. Yeah. When you look at the scripture, the Holy Spirit says, well, we should pray, we should preach, we should care, we should love. But it doesn't always, the Holy Spirit stops short of saying how that would look programmatically. Yeah. And so the way pastoral care looks, say, in central India is going to look different than it does, say, in Los Angeles today with the internet and uh, with COVID and, and all that. So McGavern was astute to know that, you know, there's going to be cultural adaptations that are appropriate, they're proper, but at the same time, he, he really wasn't necessarily for mega churches as, as an example. Now he yeah. wasn't against mega churches as long as they were growing through conversion growth. Right. What he was concerned was, was the megachurch was growing through transfer growth. Yeah. You know, and, and in his heart, when he was in India, he planted 15 churches. And those 15 churches had roughly 1,000 people in them. Well, just divide 1,000 by 15. Right. And they were all less than 100 yeah. people in size. In his mind, church growth was more about the expansion or extension of church growth rather than the enlargement of a single church. Right. I think he would have been more happy with church planting, you know, the extension of maybe smaller churches versus the enlargement of a single church. One of the things that I loved about your framing of his ideas from the beginning was this idea of contextualization, that the truth of the gospel is culturally adaptable in a way that no other religion is. I mean, Judaism and Islam, for instance, don't just carry belief systems with them. They carry a cultural, they carry a culture with them. Yes. There are specific behaviors. There are specific cultural backgrounds that you do everywhere if you are Muslim or if you are Jewish, whereas the, the culture of Christianity changes depending on the culture of the place. Obviously, there are places where the culture of that place is tied to paganism, and so we don't adapt to those cultures or shouldn't. <laughs> there, not, not that there haven't been examples of us doing that, but it's understood biblically that that's not the way we do it. But for anything that is simply a cultural norm that isn't tied to paganism or isn't tied to any moral imperative, the truth of the gospel is without question the most culturally adaptable uh, belief system ever. I would say as a Christian, of course, because truth does that. <laughs> truth works everywhere. Well, I think what happened in America is the term church growth was hijacked. Okay. It's very similar. You know, today we say, give me a Kleenex, but you go over to the box and the box maybe says puffs. It's not right. a Kleenex box, but the term Kleenex, which is a actual type of tissue paper, uh, has been hijacked to mean all different kinds of tissue papers. And I think what happened in America, when the term church growth got very popular in the 1980s, all of a sudden you've got pastors writing books about my story, how I built my church. Well, if a publisher publishes that book, what category are they going to put it under? Well, they looked out there and said, well, that fits under church growth. And then you had people who wrote books on marketing the church. And they said, well, where do books on marketing the church fit? Oh, that goes under church growth. And then there were books that were written about the church management. Well, where do you put those books? Well, let's put them under church growth. 
So I, I think what happened was when church growth became such a popular term, that gradually it picked up baggage, other topics, other ideas that were never in McGavern's mind. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. McGavern never thought of church growth as management or marketing or advertising, although he knew that churches had to be managed and churches would advertise. But he never in his mind ever perceived that church growth would be known as marketing or advertising. And that was part of what happened with America. Yeah. Americans, we tend to grab hold of a word and then we kind of lump everything under it. And frankly, Carl, the same thing's happening today with the term missional church. Missional has become very popular. Well, now everything's missional. Right. <laughs> right. Missional worship, missional youth groups, missional this, missional that. It's like pretty soon the word missional you know, is going to lose any sort of meaning. And that's what happened yeah. with church growth. In the 70s, here in America and the 80s, church growth was known to be an evangelistic paradigm. Right. But then by the 90s, it morphed into what was known as a marketing paradigm. Right. That's where I was primarily introduced to it during that era. Well, and that's where most, uh, I would say, younger pastors are today. Pastors who are, say, in their um, 50s, maybe 40s, have probably been raised at a time when, to them, church growth was all about marketing the church, or maybe right. business management principles. But I go further back. I was part of that early group in the 70s that initially connected with the church growth movement. And we saw it as uh, a way to understand how to be more fruitful evangelistically. Right, right. But I think that's part of what happened, you know, as American, like you say, entrepreneurs, uh, American publishing, American marketing, whatever they, you know, they, they adopted or co-opted, I guess you would say the term church yeah. growth. And now a short break to talk about something else. If you like the content you're hearing, here are two things you can do for us. First, forward this podcast to a friend. Second, consider becoming a financial supporter through Patreon, Venmo, or PayPal. Just go to carlvaders.com support. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most. Our support link is in the show notes. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
I love this because there's so so much of this is really counter to my what my expectations were in getting into the subject. The one maybe the the one controversial idea that we haven't touched on yet. So let's dive into it. And probably his most controversial idea is the idea of the homogenous church principle. Yes. So can you describe what that is and what it has become? And is it different from what he originally uh, said that it was that it was about? Sure. So we got to go back and remember that McGavran was a missionary in India. Right. In India, the caste system, the divisions among peoples is very rigid. It's rigid today. It was even more rigid in 1923 when he went. So to win a person out of, say, one caste and to you know, to get them to worship together with people of another caste was nearly impossible. Uh, normally, when a person would become a Christian, they would be kicked out of their family, kicked out of their caste. And what would happen is that the missionaries would bring them to the missionary compound and would train them and raise them. Well, what happened was that because they were separate from their caste, they had no evangelistic potential to right. win their own family to faith in Christ. And so McGavern's looking at that and saying, okay, what is the best way to bring people to faith in Christ? Well, if people in India feel like becoming a Christian means they have to give up their identity as Indians and become American, they won't become a Christian. And it won't be because they don't believe in Jesus Christ, but it will be because they don't want to become American. They want to remain Indian. They want to remain part of their people group. And, you know, this was something he noticed among all missionaries. And, you know, we all know this, that historically, when the missionaries went to another country, not only did they take the gospel, but they took their own culture. Right. So when Swedish missionaries would go somewhere, unbeknownst to them, they would often be saying kind of subconsciously, believe in Jesus Christ and become Swedish. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, or believe in Jesus Christ and become German, or, you know, become believe in Jesus and become British English. And so McGavern was aware of that, that sometimes people rejected Christianity, not because of Jesus, but because they didn't want to become Swedish, or they didn't want to become German or American or English or whatever. So he basically said, we've got to divest the gospel of Jesus Christ with these superfluous if I can say that right, superfluous ideas that people need to accept, accept Jesus Christ based on Jesus Christ alone for salvation, not all this extra cultural baggage. So he said, people like to become Christians without crossing barriers. And in those barriers, he included barriers of race and culture and economics and things like that. And, um, right. Essentially, what he meant was what we see in Acts 15. When the gospel was first taken from the Jewish people to the Gentiles, the Jewish people wanted to put onto the Gentiles some of their own Jewish cultural beliefs. Right. If your listeners will go back and read that again, you know, Paul comes back, Barnabas comes back, and they had this big discussion the cultural context or the, the context of the passage seems to indicate they had an argument. Yeah. Oh, you know, the Gentiles have now come to faith. What kind of expectations are the Jews going to put on them? Right. 
eventually they decided that they won't put extra biblical expectations on the Gentiles, except they said, you know, you know, don't eat food offered to idols or uh, don't drink blood. I, I can't remember the whole passage, right? right? Which, which yeah. some theologians believe was a compromise from what they <laughs> yeah. really wanted to do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So McGavern is saying, okay, if we're going to win people to faith in Christ, we need to present the gospel of salvation, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, and call people to belief in Jesus Christ, apart from expecting them to take on any particular cultural expectations like uh, change your clothes and dress like a European or learn English or give up your hunting culture and become a farming culture or something like that. McGavern is, is looking at this as a principle to help more people come to faith to remove the external extras that we add to the gospel culturally. Now, when he came to America and presented this principle, because of our history of racism and slavery in America, everybody read that homogeneous unit principle through the lens of slavery and racism right. here in America. And there was huge reactions against it. Now, the, the crazy thing here, and this is in my biography, I know you read it, McGavern and his wife had spent 31 years of their lives ministering to black people, dark-skinned yeah. people in India. And even in the United States, they attended black churches. Yep. They went to church. The only time they didn't is when they were elderly. They eventually joined Lake Avenue Congregation, uh, which was close to their home. And the reason they joined it is because they needed to have a church that had a great care system for elderly people that they needed. But up until that time, they always attended black churches in the United States. And right. um, they were about as far from anything that you could think of as racist as, yeah. as there is. My, my take on it, just to simplify it from my own simple brain, it was, it appears to me that his original statement was, we should not require them to cross caste or racial barriers in order to become Christian. And that became interpreted as we should not allow them to cross caste or racial barriers and keep them in there. What was supposed to be freeing and removing of a requirement, we interpreted in some circles in, in America as putting a racial component onto it that was exactly the opposite of what his original intention was. Yes, right. You're exactly right. He, I tell people the homogeneous unit principle in McGavern's mind was a principle of inclusion, not right. exclusion. Exactly. He was trying to figure out how can I bring more people to Christ, more people into the church. And he says, let's don't put extra biblical requirements on the gospel. Yeah, We wouldn't say to a person, you have to become, you know, you, you believe in Christ and then you have to do this. Right Now, in his mind, he believed in brotherhood. He believed in uh, ecumenity. He believed that churches ought to demonstrate a multi-ethnic congregation as long as the, the cultural context was that way. Right. In, in Southern California, for instance, where we have a, a huge multi-ethnic environment, he would say, yes, the church ought to reflect that multi-ethnicity in the church. But he didn't want to make that a requirement of belief for a person right. to receive Christ. Now, in his mind, once a person believed 
and the Holy Spirit filled their life, that gradually people then would come face to face with their sin, with their biases, and that gradually through the Holy Spirit, they would grow in their faith and become less racist, right. less concerned about those things. Um, it's a very complex thing. And I know this isn't giving justice to it today, but hopefully it'll help a little bit. Well, well, you, you've provided far more nuance for it than we usually hear. So I, I very, very much appreciate that. Can we get back to, do you think the church can get back to some of the original ways that Donald McGavran defined church growth? Can we get back to it? Should we try? If so, how would we get back to it? And if not, what should we do instead? There's a multi-layered question for you. That's right. <laughs> well, I think the church growth movement was successful. I think the way we see it being successful, at least one way, is that a lot of the principles and a lot of the concepts that were taught are just understood today uh, naturally. So for instance, most church planters today who go out and plant a church, whether they know it or not, they're using church growth principles yeah. uh, that McGavran came up with and some of his colleagues back in the 70s and the 80s. It's funny, but I read a lot of the new books, say, on the missional church. And when I'm reading them, I'm thinking to myself, this is just church growth ideas, but they don't even know it. A lot of these younger pastors don't even know that a lot of the missional writings are church growth principles. Now, the missional church has, has added to it. And I think some of the missional church writings have tried to become more theological in terms of their, their expression. Of, of some of these ideas. McGavran was a missionary. He was a, a very practical type of person. Uh, McGavran didn't put a lot of theology in his books, in part because he felt like people already had their theology, right. and he just didn't feel like he needed to. For instance, he was a, a deep man of prayer, but he didn't ever write very much about prayer, and the reason he didn't is because he just assumed that pastors pray. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Christians pray. And he thought, why do I even need to tell them to pray? They, they're praying. Plus, he introduced a whole new way of thinking to the church and did so late in his life where it's like, I better concentrate just on this because this is a big change and I don't have much time to get it across to everybody. That's, that's my guess anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. I, I think a lot of the principles of church growth are there. They're intuitive. To a lot of people today, they don't know really where they came from. You know, the, the whole thing of small groups and the expansion of small groups, you know, I hear all the time this idea to get larger, you have to get smaller. As your church grows, you have to stay small with these small cell groups. Well, where did that come from? It came, came from McGavran. What's the most effective way of evangelism? It's through friends and family connections. It's not through large crusades. It's not through door-to-door -door knocking and talking, the cold calling on people in the neighborhood. People come to faith in Christ through family and friends. Well, McGavran wrote about that in his very first book, which was 1955, The Bridges of God. Yep. And he talked about the bridges of God. Well, who are the bridges? You and me are the bridges to our non-Christian family and friends and, and work colleagues. So when we talk today about, say, lifestyle evangelism or friendship evangelism or network evangelism, whatever you want to call it, that's a church growth principle going back to 1955 with McGavran. But nobody knows that. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. From that kind of piggybacking on that and so much of what you've said already kind of partially answers this question, but let me answer it, ask it directly to see if there's anything else. What what would you say are some lessons and encouragement that a small church leader particularly could gain from the principles of Donald McGavran? I'd love to hear this from you because again, so much of what we, so many small church pastors out there right now, if they see the words church growth on one more book or one more podcast or one more conference, they're just not going because they are so frustrated and discouraged by what you have already called the baggage that's been attached to that term. But as we've already seen for you know this last half hour or so, so much of what we now see as church growth really wasn't the original intention. I was really encouraged and blessed by the insights from this biography. Is there anything we haven't talked about yet that you think might be a particular encouragement or a lesson for a small church pastor, specifically from the teachings and life of Donald McGavern? I would say recognize that uh, the founder of the church growth movement never led, planted, or pastored a church bigger than 100 himself. And he believed that churches could be faithful, they could be successful, they could be fruitful, even as small churches. His concern was more about effectively evangelizing people and getting them connected to the church. So I would say to the best of your ability, rid yourself of any guilt that you're not a mega church or a larger church. You need to be faithful right where you are. But what that means is you've got to understand your context. You've got to do some research. What is your church like? What's its history like? What are the baggages and the barriers that your church carries or faces? <laughs> kind of mixed the metaphors there, didn't I? But uh, you know, what are the what is the history of your church? You know, your church today is where it is because of decisions that were made in the past. Right. So what is that history and how does that impact the church today? And then research your community around your church. Most churches reach people within about a 10 to 20 mile radius or a 10 to 20 minute drive at the most. So what, what are the unchurched people in your community like? And based on the history of your church, and uh, what the people in your community, the unchurched community are like, what does that say about what our ministry needs to look like, and how do we need to adapt to be more fruitful in reaching people for Christ? There is the issue of stewardship. McGavern always talked about stewardship. We have to be stewards of the resources that God has given us. Some have more resources than others, but we all have some resources. Our resources are our people, our time, the resources of our facilities, resources of our, our spiritual resources of prayer and worship. So we have to take responsibility to be good stewards of those resources and to look at our church and, and decide, you know, what can I do? I can't do everything, but I can do something. Yep. So rather than having this, woe is me, you know, I can't be the mega church. We've just got to say, okay, what can I learn from the church growth movement and how can I apply that in a reasonable way in my, my context? Carl, I pastored two churches myself, I, and both of them were small churches. Uh, the biggest church I ever pastored personally was 150 people on Sunday morning. Yeah. I never felt guilty. There was another church in town that was running 2,000. It was less than a mile away from mine. For some reason, I never felt guilty that I wasn't that other church. 
I just realized I had to be the best person I could be, the best pastor I could be. And I had to use my resources that God had given me to the best of the ability that I could and help my church be the most effective they could. I took from the church growth movement principles like, okay, uh, if most people come to faith in Christ through friends and family, then how can I marshal the friends and, you know, marshal that principle for use in my own church? How can I help my people reach their friends and their family, you know? Yeah. I didn't worry that I, I couldn't be 2,000 people. I just tried to figure out how can I use these principles in my church. And so I would encourage, uh, you know, your listeners as much as possible, you know, rid yourself of this guilt. There's McGavern never said you had to be a mega church. He just said you had to be a church that was winning people of faith in Christ, making disciples. Yeah. McGavern would not have been happy with a church that wasn't making disciples. As long as they were making disciples, meaning new believers are coming to faith in Christ and added to the church, even if it was one or two or three a year. I mean, he's happy. You laid out two truths for me that that really struck me. And I put them together and it's kind of making me grin. One, you said the founder of the church growth movement never pastored a church of more than a hundred people. And secondly, before that, actually, you said all these church growth folks out there are doing McGavern's principles without even realizing they're following his principles. And then it strikes me as funny because I've heard of pastors who say, well, how can I learn something from a church, from a pastor, if the church is smaller than mine? I'm not going to put myself, I've had people, when I get up to speak at conferences, I've watched as large church pastors leave the room, because what can I possibly learn from a guy who's pastoring a church of a hundred? They're all using principles that were first promoted by a guy who never pastored a church larger than a hundred people, and they don't even realize it. That to me just strikes me as part of God's sense of humor, uh, that that's the way he's put that together. That's that's true. Yeah, well, McGavern was a missionary. He wasn't a pastor, technically, (laughs) But, but you're right. But it also goes, of course, to our, our place of influence. You know, it, it's really, we can, even in a smaller congregation, in a smaller setting, have great influence for the kingdom of God. And at every age of our lives, I mean, his greatest era of influence for the world and ongoing today happened in his 60s and 70s. So uh, there's no time when our potential for influence is gone, and there's no size of ministry that is not uh, available for God to use and to have great impact upon the world. So uh, th- thank you for, for so much that's here in so many places we could go, but I do want to wrap it up. I want to honor your time. And I have a series of lightning round questions that every single guest is required to answer. Oh, okay. So I'm going to give them to you now. Are you ready for this? Okay. Question number one, what are the biggest changes you've seen in your field of ministry in the last few years and how have you adapted to it? The biggest changes in the last few years. Well, my field of ministry is being a professor, and I think the biggest change lately has been to move from uh, face-to-face classes to online. I think every pastor's kind of faced that too. Yeah, um, I've adapted like everybody else. You know, you just you have to learn new technology. You have to invest in new technology. <laughs> you, yeah. uh, you know, you have to be willing to pivot. Honestly, I'm proud of the church. I. I know that the church at large is struggling right now. A lot of churches, you know, have declining membership and that sort of thing, or declining attendance, maybe is a better term. But honestly, when you look at it, the church was pretty flexible. Yes. 
I mean, worldwide, the church was pretty Very flexible. Much so. Made a lot of changes quickly. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's one of those things. We, we've shown ourselves in the last two years to be more flexible than a lot of us thought we were. So yeah. let's not be in a rush to go back to the way things were. Let's learn from that to be even more adaptable and flexible in the future. Absolutely. So that's question number one. Question number two, do you know of a free resource like an app or a website or something that's helped you lately that you would recommend for small church ministry? Well, I'll, I'll say this, and, and I'm, I'm not saying it just because I'm talking to you, but I think you and uh, some of your books are probably the freshest thing that I've read uh, lately. I, I really don't listen to a lot of podcasts and I don't frequent a lot of, you know, websites and stuff. Sure. I had the same question. Somebody on their podcast asked me this morning and I told them I've almost stopped listening to podcasts the last couple of years, even while I've started my own. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just an issue of time. You yeah, know, yeah me too. Down to an issue of time. And uh, I, you mentioned earlier that I do a lot of writing and I've, I've kind of dedicated myself to more writing. Uh, yeah. than other things. And, uh, you know, I just have so much energy, so much creative juices, and I just got to kind of guard it. Yeah, that's been my, uh, m that's where my decisions have, have gone lately too. And I did bring it up in the intro. Do you know, do you have a count of how many books you have authored or co-authored? 26 so far. I got 27. I'm working on it today. <laughs> oh, and wow. it, is a book, it is a book for for pastors of smaller churches, it's going to be calling Flying Solo. Oh, and uh, it's the idea of pastoring a church by yourself uh, in the sense of uh, no other paid staff. But right, you. right. There's a resource we don't have an, an, an awful lot of help on. So I would look forward yeah. to that. That'll be yeah, great. About, about somewhere around 70% of all churches are led by one paid pastor, part-time or full-time. And yep. every, everything else is volunteer help. Yeah, so absolutely. It's targeted to that group. Yeah. Great. Lightning round question number three, what's the best piece of ministry advice you've ever received? If you have a choice between two options, go with the boldest option. Oh. If you're looking at two ministry options, choose the one that's the boldest. If you're looking at two career options, go with the career option that is the boldest option. We typically look back on our life and we don't regret uh, the stuff we tried, we regret the stuff we didn't try. Yeah. Uh, so we might as well go for the boldest thing there and, we go. Uh, and, and uh, trust God in faith to, uh, to stretch us. I know I did that one time and it made a big difference. Yeah, that's great. Last question. What's the funniest or weirdest thing you've ever seen in church? <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> funniest, funniest, weirdest thing. Uh, Oh, I don't know. There's several. The thing that pops into my mind, well, when I was pastoring one time, I had a young man in the neighborhood who felt like he was a prophet from God. Uh, he would come in sometimes and uh, create disturbances in the church. It was really weird. I finally asked him to leave one time and he, he prophesied against me. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. You you gotta love the self-appointed prophets, right? I don't know. Oh my goodness! Especially when you take a look at the Bible, there's not a single prophet in the Bible who wanted to be one. They were all reluctant. 
they got all got stoned, didn't they? <laughs> exactly. That's that's probably one of the reasons why they were reluctant. Anybody who wants to rush into that territory too quickly, right there, is suspect in my mind. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your advice. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for demythologizing and helping us to understand some of the misunderstandings about uh, such an important church leader like Donald McGavern. I really appreciate that. Well, if I can, I would encourage people to get this book. Yep. And uh, it's available in paperback, but also in ebook form. I, I encourage them to get the paperback because you will, you will want to, as I did, underline it and tab it all over the place. And for me, the ebook, yes, you can uh, highlight it, but you, it's not the same to go back to in an ebook as it is to go back to in a book in print. So no. yeah, I, I read it. It's been almost a year ago since I read it and just got so much out of it and really appreciate the opportunity for this follow-up to talk with you about it. Thank you so much. Appreciate what you're doing out there. Thank you. Thank you very much. So can this work in a small church? Can we use the ideas initially proposed by Donald McGavran in healthy smaller congregations without putting even more pressure on pastors to grow numerically? Yes, we can do that. But we just need to get back to the original intent of McGavran, that it's about evangelism, that it's about growth by conversion, and that it's about discipleship that it is absolutely not about congregations getting bigger. It's not about putting more pressure on pastors. It's not about only having one kind of person in your church. So much of it is really about having a heart for people, a heart for missions, a heart for your community, understanding its context, and putting all of those principles into play as best we can. This episode was produced by Veronica Beaver and edited by Phil Vaders. Original theme music was written and performed by Jack Wilkins of jackwilkinsmusic.com. The podcast logo was created by Solomon Joy of joyetic.com. Me, I'm Carl Vaders, and I'm a small church pastor.